So we're in very strange time at the moment. It's March 2020. We're about to go into lockdown. We've got social isolation already and it feels like a suspension of time. And there's two things, I suppose. One is that it's highlighting to me issues about time and care and work. You know, people are going to have their children at home and they're trying to work. And how is that even going to work? And then also, yeah, just we're going to be experiencing time in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm part of a team at the moment funded by the Wellcome Trust to work together on questions of waiting in relation to, to healthcare. We're working on questions of care and time, trying to in some ways sort of revalorise these forms of enduring, persisting, staying, repeating and returning and so on in relation to the chronic and the urgent in the health service at the moment. And of course we are suddenly in the situation where certainly UK government policy seems to have these extraordinary temporal frames to them. So we've been in a process called containment and now supposedly we're in something called delay. We're going to live this time differentially and it will have very, very differential results. That is, if you're in a small flat with no garden with your three children and trying to work, you're in a very, very different situation from someone who's much more comfortable. We absolutely know that this is going to be a very striated experience that's going to lead to very striated outcomes too. But nevertheless, we're interested in something shared in this moment and what that sharedness might mean and whether waiting with, in terms of sharing time as opposed to space, we're all now not able to meet in person, but we are sharing time. And I think that is something that might allow something we, we could call thinking to unfold. Where it takes us, I don't know yet, but it seems to me that the struggle right now is to try to think in real time. That's Lisa Baretza, Professor of Psychosocial Studies, who we met in episode four. As we just heard, we spoke to her in March, just before lockdown, and it feels really strange now listening back to that interview, months later after so much has happened and after so many people have died, and how she predicted so much of what we've experienced. Coronavirus has highlighted stark inequalities in society, but it's given us all a new perspective as well. Yes, suddenly conversations that we have been having about time and care and work are in the spotlight and have become part of a national conversation. So partway through editing this series, whilst we were in full lockdown, but just as the government started setting out a plan for easing it in England, we got in touch with some of the other people we've spoken to in the podcast. This is True Currency, produced through the Alternative School of Economics at Gasworks. I'm Amy Fenwick. And I'm Ruth Beale. And we're artists whose practice is all about finding ways of learning creatively and collectively. Over this series, we have been meeting a network of extraordinary women who have been teaching us about feminist economics through their experience and ideas. In this episode, we're going to hear again from Claire Summers, Shiri Shalmi and Marion Sharples about their perspective on the pandemic and how they have been experiencing this unprecedented moment. But first, let's hear more from our conversation with Lisa Baretza, just as full lockdown was announced. In being told to stay at home, there's an emphasis on our own maintenance as individuals and just living that part of our life and not sort of living the capitalist work of our life. And for a lot of people, they won't be able to work. That is obviously a terrifying thought as well. I suppose I feel like the, the, the impossibility of these two kinds of 
time and work is suddenly in relief. It's very interesting that, isn't it? So someone in our project, an artist researcher called Martin O'Brien, who lives with cystic fibrosis, he's just been talking to us about how in a funny way, the whole world has suddenly got cystic fibrosis. We're all in a situation that he has lived for his entire life to struggle for breath, to not be able to meet other cystic fibrosis sufferers in the same space for fear of contamination, you know, to have a six-foot distance, whatever, a metre distance between other people and so on. So in a way, what you're alluding to is, are we all going to live women's time in this time? That is this really difficult struggle, if you like, between what has become assigned as work time outside of the home and what still traditionally occupies the space of the home, that is this kind of reproductive labour we've been talking about, that are now in a new, you could say, radical conjunction where will we all now live women's time, although it's going to be lived very painfully because it's so full of affect, the kinds of affects that we associate with motherhood which are about terror and profound anxiety and a feeling of intense insecurity and uh, uncertainty about the future. We're in one of those moments that is not so far away from the kinds of moments that many of us have lived, whether it's through chronic illness, through poverty, through maternal experience. Lisa mentioned women's time there, but I think she was also talking about crip time this idea of time being experienced differently through disability and long-term illness. Alison Kafer says in her book, Feminist Queer Crip, Crip time is flex time, not just expanded but exploded. It requires reimagining our notions of what can and should happen in time, or recognising how expectation of how long things take are based on very particular minds and bodies. Rather than bend disabled bodies and minds to meet the clock, Crip time bends the clock to meet disabled bodies and minds. I find what Lisa says about anxiety, insecurity and intensity really incisive and I can definitely relate to some of that in my experiences of motherhood. And I mean especially over the last few months in lockdown, both my children have been at home constantly, you know, that intensity has been really full on and relationships have definitely been strained because of it. It also makes me reflect back on the conversations that we had with Claire in episode four where she talked a lot about her personal experience of motherhood. Yeah, so it felt important to catch up with Claire. She's a community nurse and a mother and somewhat appropriately you can hear her son Ashley in the background of this call. I might keep muting myself when you're talking because there's like there's going to be bedtime going on behind me shortly and probably oh, okay, no worries. <laughs> and I've got my older one he's sitting on the toilet <laughs> so I might have to go a few seconds oh, when he calls fine. is that all right yeah yeah it's totally fine <laughs> this is like completely multitasking is the baby a bit of an issue is it um no, no. are you sure okay yeah. so many things on the go right now Okay, Claire, you've very recently gone back to work for the NHS after a year of maternity leave. Could you tell us what your job is and describe the work that you're doing? Yeah, I'm a community nurse. So we visit patients 
in their homes. It's not as um, acute as the hospital, but of course they're still, it's very essential, their care. So medication, wounds, people that have been recently discharged from hospital. And what's it like doing that job during this pandemic? How has it changed the job? Well, we've always been busy, so we are busy. We are used to working like that. The difference is now, I feel like, because we have to sort of distance ourselves from our colleagues, I feel a bit um, isolated from them. And it's also worrying because we see people with the coronavirus and it is worrying to us and our safety. So when I first started back at work, when we went to see a patient with a positive test, we would put gowns and masks and um, it's more like, you know, when you're going into surgery and then the face masks, the surgical masks. So we were wearing those. So we're supposed to wear those masks for every patient now with um, an apron, a plastic apron and, um, and gloves. We are given PPE, but I feel like we don't know the correct guidelines to follow as I felt like they've changed the rules to suit the situation. There is enough, but it is restricted. So who's looking after your children when you're at work now and how has your family adjusted to you being back to work? It's really weird because at the beginning of this pandemic or the tail end of my maternity leave, I was at home and then my partner was working. And I was at home with the children. I can quickly go up from school, drop them off, no worries. If they're ill, I'm at home anyway. And then within like a week, literally, it just completely flipped, turned around. And my partner was at home because he was actually laid off. Was your partner laid off because of COVID? Yeah, yeah. Mm. So he wasn't bringing any money home. And then I went back to work. So I went back to work, I think, two weeks early. To help out because well they were busy and because there were nurses off so now we're relying on just my wages which is a bit tight you had covid yourself didn't you the week that i went back i developed it so i may have caught it from going back to work so how has the family adjusted to this flip of who's looking after the kids we found it a bit more difficult than the children i think my partner was found it really quite difficult so he was at home with Leo all day, every day. So when I got home from work, I could see his face. I think he looked hopeless. (laughs) And then when I walked through the door, they all ran up to me. I said, wait a minute, I need to take my uniform off at least. (laughs) But I think, yeah, I think he found it quite hard. I mean, I did too, because I, I actually, I wanted to be at home with the children while they were at home. I felt like, you know, you're torn between two a little bit we try to stay out of the office as much as we can so we see our patients and then we we can go home to do our admin work the challenges with that is that as soon as I get home the children want my attention and then I see loads of things that I think oh god I've got to do that you know the kids are getting hungry so I'm trying to sit down concentrate and write, write my notes phone the doctors phone pharmacies whatever I'm trying to do and I've got children running around <laughs> I find it really quite difficult to prioritise my attention between working at home and and then thinking about the patients and what they need. 
So uh, that's really hard for me. And I've not had to do that before because obviously we, when I was at work, I was at work and I used to go back to the office and do all that admin at, at the office and then come home. And then I could feel like I could switch off a little bit and leave that at work. And I, so I feel like a little bit that I'm always at work. And then I've got the children as well and my partner. Because you feel like you need a hundred hands just to balance it all. It's really hard being with children 24 hours a day. <laughs> it's like mentally it's draining because they my older one keeps asking questions or he wants to do things that he's not supposed to do and they get bored and then they get irritable and I get irritable and yeah and especially as we live in a flat with no garden up very high especially yeah at the beginning because we weren't really allowed out only once a day for about an hour and my son Leo got just crazy with like claustrophobic almost I think so you're a key worker as mm. working for the NHS. I wondered what your thoughts on the way key workers are, are being valued uh, by society at this kind of particular time and and whether you think this has changed because of the pandemic. I think the general public really do value us. But I, I think they always have, but it's really come to light now. Yeah, I do. I do feel really proud of my profession, what I do, being a nurse, working for the NHS. I wouldn't want to do anything else. And I absolutely love my job. And, you know, the clapping on on Thursday, I think I was ill. The first time I heard it, I was ill with coronavirus. And I heard this clapping. I thought, what's that? And I realised, I thought, oh, it's the clapping at eight o'clock. And I started crying. I thought, oh, it's so nice. Yeah, so I do. I feel very, very, very valued what I do and some businesses and hotels or you know that do catering drop off food for us in our office it's so touching it's amazing it just helps our day so much however I don't know if the government will, will um, you know follow this through with the appreciation of us it's not confirmed anything there's supposed to be a pay freeze for the next two years and I thought, oh my God. <laughs> I think it was in the nursing standard I read it. We'll see what happens in the long term. But a pay phrase will not be welcomed. <laughs> do you think that the value that it's people are putting on crazy. NHS workers, do you think that that's going to follow through to people kind of valuing all carers or seeing all carers in this new light? I hope that it will help recognise other areas of care yes I do but in reality I don't think that they will recognize the care that's not paid for you know in the care homes as well because I think they were a little bit forgotten about maybe coming to a surface a little bit more now because they're carrying out tests but it's like six seven weeks in this is ridiculous it should have been recognized a lot earlier but I still think the care that mothers give care that people give their um, parents as carers I don't think it'll be um, recognised. You know how so at the moment now you're allowed to your childminders and your nannies are allowed to come to your house the grandparents the children can't come and look after the children I thought that yeah just tells you so much strange. about the way the government understand the way the world works and the way that people yeah. rely on grandparents. Definitely exactly that is not recognised is it? It's like showing that 
they understand care to be only recognised when you put a value, like money, monetary exactly. value on it. Yes, exactly. That's the nail on the head. They mm. don't see it when it's a family or, you know, a mother or a parent. Is there anything we can learn from this pandemic, thinking about the future? Yeah, I think we can prepare more. And I think that we need to test Test, test, test. That is the only way that you're going to know who's got this and who hasn't. We're now going to hear from Shiri Shalmi, who organises with the Sex Workers Union and the Women's Strike. And in 2019, she co-founded Cooperation Kentish Town. So my co-op now is distributing food to hundreds of people every week for free. We don't ask them for any kind of organizing contribution or monetary contribution obviously uh, and they are the people you know who are already on low or no income that is that is our only criteria we, we don't know them they don't have to be ill or followed or whatever they have to be on low or no income it's mums who are doing this work for weeks and weeks we were just like a bunch of mums and grandmothers packing foods for hundreds of people every week and distributing them and sending them off to people with like you know, a small army of mutual aiders, because we don't want to call them volunteers. And the majority of them would be women, you know? And, and I'll be speaking to like the people at social services, the people at the disability organizations, organizers in other estates and in other, you know, community centers, and they're all mums. The work is done by women. There's like women who have been holding like whole communities on the shoulders for years already. You know, they don't get, a job title for it and they don't get any kind of credit and they're just holding like whole communities i mean i think a lot of this work is done by the same people who were doing it before and you know motherhood is a form of labor and and kind of all these relationships that we had all the reproductive labor yeah it's never recognized because you know this is just what women do and even now there's this language of like oh you know they're so caring and you know they're so brave and you know we should like appreciate them and all this kind of emotive language about like oh isn't that nice that you know women do all this kind of stuff it suits them so well so i think that's the language that kind of meant that we were never considered to be working already we know that women die because women do the jobs that kill them now the nurses and the carers and so on and we know that they're not just any women we know that they're black and brown women and they're migrant women there's this idea what people say about returning to normal don't they and lots of people are horrified about the idea of returning to normal and then maybe people say oh it'll be a new normal i actually think the world is going to be much shittier after this because of all that violence that's you know been inflicted on us i mean people will be evicted from their flats that's a hundred percent but it, but i think that's why it's also important to kind of insist that the crisis did not start on the 23rd of, of march the people who who now suffer suffered already you know suffered 10 years of austerity people were dying you know in their flats with no food and no electricity you know disabled people have been dying for 10 years Children live in poverty for 10 years, you know, and obviously before, but those 10 years of austerity, you know, have already been murdering us. So COVID, just I read today, Jonathan Safran Four, the writer, said something about COVID has just been like a lightning bolt, like just kind of quickly like shedding light on all this kind of completely 
like you know understandable structure on all the injustices that were there the whole time it was not fine before and it would be much worse after and that's i think the whole like conversation around the mutual aid groups and like oh is it building like a new consciousness in people that actually we're all in it together and all that kind of stuff we're not all in it together the people who are hungry know that they are hungry uh, in the same way that the workers that are exploited already know that so it's about creating the spaces creating the confidence creating maybe sometimes the language the infrastructure for sure to be able to organize we know there's been an uptake in union membership um, at this time we've also seen that there's some efforts to help marginalized people help pay their union fees do you think it's suddenly become really clear to people what unions can do for them because of this situation it's great that lots of people join unions there is obviously a difference between like joining when you have a problem and and you know hoping they will be fixed you know maybe not kind of becoming part of a union or organizing with a union so and you know and again we've had 10 years of anti-union well we've had 50 years of anti-union kind of sentiment and 40 years of like actively breaking down the union so it's not a magic fix you know it's great that unions will maybe be a bit stronger because they would have you know their membership organizations they the more people sign up, the more capacity they have. I mean, the capacity is pretty stretched. How, um, how are the sex workers doing? Could you talk about how the sex workers' union has responded to the crisis and how sex workers are coping and are many out of work? Working yeah. must be very risky. Officially, everyone is out of work. So that was obviously a sector that was pretty shut down. I mean, it, it depends on interpersonal relationship when it comes to stripping or to full service sex work. I mean, you can't do, you know, officially you can't do full service sex work under COVID. Of course, people are doing it because people need to survive. So, yeah, it's like just like in other professions and other sectors, like the people who are already the poorest and the most marginalized still have to go to work. I spoke to a member a few days into lockdown and she told me she's working she's seeing clients and i said you know this is dangerous you know i was just trying to be like i don't know sympathetic because obviously i can't advise her you know on what to do like from a trade union perspective and she was like it's always dangerous every time i go to work i could be murdered covid is the least of my worries so that just kind of contextualizes it a bit Clubs are obviously closed. There are underground, unofficial clubs. So people still work. And then a lot of people work online. But obviously, if you remove one form of labour, there's a much more competition on another form of labour. I was thinking about how I've heard, I've read that, say, women academics are submitting less papers, but male academics are submitting more papers. So this idea of like more productivity during lockdown, or less productivity as a woman. But of course you know there's other work being done there's the work of care and mothering and mutual aid and all those other things but it also maybe questions like what is productivity anyway and this idea of going to work every day and the the school example is like really relevant i mean like my kid is 15 he's just before gcse's turns out he doesn't need to do more than two hours of schooling a day that's what the school said so and also, obviously, schools cancel GCSEs. So turns out they don't need exams either. So I've been kind of trying to encourage my kid to kind of maybe reflect on that. From an economic position, I'm worried about 
what's going to happen after this? You know, is, is austerity going to get another go? Because we're going to be in loads of debt. <laughs> and so there's going to be a deeper and deeper cuts again to all sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, they will have to find like a new kind of language to justify it because like you say, you know, they, they, they found the magic money tree, so they can't say that anymore. Turns out that the state can nationalise your salary. You know, what, what is the future? I mean, we can make demands and making demands kind of requires legitimising the people that you're making demands of. Like it is legitimising them, right? Or we can say, we want nothing from you. I don't want anything to do with you. I want to build my own infrastructure. I want to build dual power because one day I want to see you gone altogether. I want to build my own care system and my own food distribution system and ideally our own housing system. We can self-organize to meet our own needs. This idea of reorganizing society is something we wanted to speak to Marion Sharples about as well. Remember, she's working on a commission on a gender equal economy that's due to be released in September. We wanted to know how she, the Women's Budget Group and the Commission have been affected. Yeah, I, I got ill myself. I was ill for three weeks, totally not working. And then I did one week kind of um, staggered return to work. I guess the main thing I had was just really severe fatigue and lack of energy and ability to concentrate and in terms of us more generally obviously now everybody's working from home and um, we've had a couple of new colleagues join and we're only meeting them remotely which is kind of strange and the commission is that still on course for being released in september and... yeah exactly we had another meeting of the commission um, and that was of course online as well but we yeah we're very much still on course for for september and i think it really seems like this has kind of accelerated the need or kind of brought more into the mainstream, I guess, the need for fundamental economic reform. So that's been a big shift for us in terms of the framing of the commission and the world into which it's going to land. Yeah, let's talk a bit about how women have been affected by this crisis. For example, you're talking about working from home. So we know that women do way more housework and childcare, and whilst also possibly potentially going out to work. So now they're sort of doing all of that at home with the closure of schools and nurseries so this kind of unpaid labor has become almost like a crisis in itself completely and i think there's been some really interesting studies coming out about who's taking on that burden there was a study done by cambridge oxford and zurich universities showing that mothers in the uk provide at least 50 percent more childcare, as well as spending around 10 to 30 percent more time than fathers homeschooling their children which I think is, is pretty striking. And actually, we saw some figures this morning from the IFS coming out, which was that women are more likely to uh, be juggling two things at a time. So juggling work or childcare or elder care. And also women are less likely to have uninterrupted work time when working from home than men are. In the same study, it showed that women are still doing almost the same amount of housework as men, even when men are not working, if they've been furloughed. You'd expect that men would really kind of be doing the, the lion's share of the, of the housework and then the and unpaid care work but it seems as that's actually not the case which is shocking I think really. So those roles are so sort of stuck that even in the situation that we're finding ourselves in women are still doing most of the domestic work and most mm -hmm. of the childcare. Mm -hmm. Even when men are furloughed so essentially not working. Yeah. What about women in paid work? We know that statistically there's more women in precarious work and then there's other details like the self-employed scheme not accounting for maternity leave and there's already an earnings gap. Mm. 
there's perhaps more women in frontline positions, more women losing their jobs. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that? 77% of high risk roles are carried out by women and of the lowest paid ones of those kind of uh, poverty wages, high risk jobs, 98% of those jobs are done by women, which is a really crazy statistic. I think that literally <laughs> if you're dividing up society and you're looking at, you know, who are the, who are the highest risk people, who are the people going out risking their lives every day and who are getting very poorly remunerated for that. And it's almost exclusively women, 98%, which I think is really very powerful statistic and really makes us think about who's who's putting themselves who's making personal sacrifices at this time we've seen change in sort of the way society as a whole is actively sort of appreciating paid care workers frontline workers in the nhs in particular what do you think of that recognition i think there has been a really interesting shift in kind of public awareness not so much around the nhs which i think has always been very much respected and lauded in british society but i think the recognition of not only the sacrifices that care workers make but also the fact that there's such little kind of financial reward for the jobs that they do i think that really has been brought into the public consciousness which i think is really positive and i think the challenge now is to convert that energy convert that awareness and that support into kind of real change yesterday actually the Fawcett Society did some really um, interesting polling which came out which said that 65% of respondents supported an increase in income tax to fund a pay rise for care workers which is really interesting and then you know uh, this is this is kind of contrasted with the current scenario where uh, one in four care workers are on zero hours contract 70% of them earn less than 10 pounds an hour it's a low bar to be making improvements from, but I think that's really interesting to see that public support for better remuneration for care workers. So hopefully that will maintain momentum. Um, I just wanted to go to COVID-19 disproportionately affecting black and minority ethnic people. So mm-hmm. firstly, that's in terms of work and who's doing those frontline jobs. Um, and then there's the fact that it's black and minority ethnic people are more likely to die from it. What are the underlying health and wealth inequalities there that are causing that? There's something about the sectors that people are employed in. I think there's also a really important issue around housing and overcrowding, which our colleagues at the Running Trust have flagged as well, and about who is more likely to be living in uh, overcrowded or or uh, substandard housing where social distancing is really very, very difficult. And I saw an interesting statistic as well about kind of partners employment rates so the extent to which you can kind of buffer incomes within the household so a Pakistani and Bangladeshi women have a much lower employment rate than in the general population so as a result 29% of Bangladeshi working age men um, both work in a shutdown sector and have a partner who is not in paid work and that is in comparison to only 1% of white British men which is a really a strong start statistic as well And then, yeah, to go back to the point about the sectors, for example, 20% of black African women of working age are employed in health and social care roles, which is also a a huge kind of contrast to the wider population. How has has this pandemic thrown light onto the inadequacies of the current systems and structures that we're living in and organised by? I think it's shown kind of all sorts of different areas. I think one is when public services have been stripped away as much as they have done over the last 10 years, it really impacts on their readiness to bear such a crisis. And I think if you compare it with other countries which have invested more in their um, health and care systems in recent years, for example, Germany, we see that the crisis has been weathered a lot better. They with far, far lower death rates. 
I think another another kind of element that's, that this has really thrown light on has been the social security system. Yeah, how <laughs> inadequate it is. And I think particularly one of those things has been looking at um, statutory sick pay and how people have been really shocked that suddenly everybody knows how much statutory sick pay is. And suddenly people are asking the question, well, how am I supposed to survive on £95 a week? That's not possible. How can I do that? And then people who, who've been <laughs> trying to survive on the social security system for years are saying, I know. <laughs> The social security system in general is is part of this broader ecosystem and it, it you know if somebody can't live on, on statutory sick pay they're going to carry on going to work while they're ill and this crisis has shown that that is a huge problem in itself not just for that one person but also for the wider population as a whole so i think it's kind of shown the interconnectedness of the social security system within the broader economy and within the broader population and our connectedness i suppose as humans working alongside each other the kind of third main point i suppose well apart from the issue around kind of um, paid and unpaid care and the kind of imbalances between that and how we see that played out in this crisis in a different way where suddenly children have been brought out of school and uh, you know grandparents are no, no, no longer able to support with childcare, pay for childcare is it's all been closed down all of that the kind of impacts that we've seen there which kind of underpins all of this really <laughs> and I think you know one of the kind of long-standing critiques of how the economy is conceived of kind of conventionally by feminist economists is that everything happens in in the kind of paid economy out there in the in the in the real world you know and actually a lot of what people have been saying over these last few weeks is actually that you know the economy is still happening uh, you know those, those kids are still being said they're still being educated they're still being you know what i mean they're still being taken care of all of that work all of that labor is still happening Another kind of element has been the the double standards, I suppose, about the, the rhetoric around migration and about who is welcome here, who, who contributes here, whose contributions are valued, and this idea about unskilled and low-skilled work. Chronologically, that's been quite quite shocking, really, I think, how in, in kind of towards the beginning of the year, kind of February-March period time, I think it was, where uh, the government was rolling out a new proposed system about unskilled and skilled work and who, who will be able to, to move here for work. And then suddenly, you know, a month later, six weeks later, you've got people out on the doorstep, clapping health and social care workers, and um, many of whom are from migrant backgrounds. And, and that, you know, how can you be a key worker? How can you be valued? How can you be, you know, keeping society running, but at the same time be, be deemed unskilled? And I think that contradiction, I suppose, has become really, really clear during this pandemic. I wanted to ask a question about mutual aid. Another sort of thing that's been happening in response to COVID has across the world as, as this idea of, of mutual aid, of social solidarity and commitment to others. And I wondered in terms of perhaps also thinking about the commission, how this idea of mutual aid fits into building an economic system. That has definitely been a really kind of positive and uplifting development from this time and um, to seeing how people are supporting one, one another in their neighbourhood, in their community, reaching out, making sure that people are able to manage and to get by and to navigate this really difficult situation. One kind of word of caution that we always say is that you know the the kind of future that we want to see we want to see it full of collaboration and cooperation among people but we don't want women to be adding to their unpaid burden and to be sacrificing their own well-being and their own safety for the kind of broader community um, because that is a trend that we tend to see and I guess it's also kind of a broader question about well-being and often how well-being you know if we're talking about kind of local well-being and local priorities and kind of grassroots mobilization there there's a really important question about whose priorities and whose voices are represented there and who is they're taken seriously and who who is part of that process and often we find that women 
women are not, not always present or always heard, not always listened to in those spaces. So we would just caution to make sure that collaboration is, is kind of truly collaborative and truly inclusive of all, of all voices of the community and don't lead to a kind of disproportionate burden, I suppose, on those who often are relied on for emotional labour or for unpaid care work within the home. Are there other positives that we can take from this? I remember right at the beginning when Wuhan closed down, reading a thing that said this is the biggest home working experiment the world's ever had. It is. It has been, you know, this, this huge kind of working from home experiment. Yeah, has, has shown, I guess, a lot of companies who are reluctant to do that kind of flexible working a few days a week from home. Um, you know, that kind of thing. It's really showed that actually it, it does work and it can work. And, you know, particularly given the fact that in a global pandemic, it's hard to be as productive as you might be under normal circumstances. But even taking that into account, the fact that companies in particular have kind of managed to continue successfully their work from home. I think that really shows that it's a really positive development, I think, for flexible work in general. And I really hope that that will be maintained going forward. But I think it's very likely because it's hard to prove otherwise. This has been deemed a success. I mean, the UK, actually, the Independent did some polling around whether the government should kind of have a job guarantee scheme, making sure that everybody who can work has a job. And that found that 72% of the public uh, supported such a guarantee and just 6% were against that. So I think there's a, you know, I think it really has thrown up a lot of reasons for hope and for change and for doing things differently which is of course what the what the commission itself is all about there was a, a financial times editorial a few weeks ago which a lot of people have been commenting on which basically said that it's time for radical reforms we need to you know we need to change the kind of prevailing policy direction of the last four decades you know if we're seeing that across the political spectrum if we've got you know newspapers like the financial times recognizing that it's the time for radical reform then I think, you know, if ever there was a time, this is it. Okay. Well, thank you for joining. Thank you so much. No, not at all. um, In a way, it's a really exciting moment, you know, that feminist economics can be at the fore. We've seen how these ideas have become part of mainstream conversation. Even the difference in the way that women world leaders have dealt with the pandemic in their countries, you know, from Scotland to New Zealand. Yes, I mean, obviously there's a lot of reasons for that, but I feel really strongly that care has not been considered in government interventions here. There's been furlough schemes and grants, but no acknowledgement of all this extra unpaid care. We've both been massively affected as parents. We've had our children at home whilst trying to keep work going. You know, it's going to be nearly six months in the end. But at the same time, we have privilege. We've both been in decent housing, with incomes. We have partners who can share some of the childcare. My husband was given some compassionate leave in recognition that the children are off. He's still working, but less time. And that's the kind of thing that I think could have been rolled out. You know, it recognises that the economy is more than money. And now I feel like... We have some of the tools to articulate this as feminist economics and we can see how different models are possible. Exploring feminist economics in this series has shown me how feminism can be a way into the fight for system change. You know, like Ailey Rutherford, who's from the People's Bank of Govan Hill Project in Glasgow, she said right at the beginning of the first episode, Feminist economics is not just about women's economy or even women's equality. It's about the many injustices that capitalism and capitalist power creates. And also, I think feminist economics provides solutions that are relatively easy to understand. You know, this idea of interconnectedness 
of being interdependent and how this relates to how the economy should be structured, but also how we relate to and understand each other and the world in which we live. So we've got to the end of the series. This is the last episode of six. If you had six more, Amy, what would you do? I think I would want to explore the histories of feminist groups and movements that expand on what it means to be feminist. So, you know, for example, groups in black feminist history that address multiple oppressions such as race, sex and class. And reading Lola Olufemi's book, Feminism Interrupted, we did a bit of her book in our feminist economics reading group. And she talks about feminist work as justice work. And I think this has been a really good start to my thinking more about that. How about you, Ruth? (laughs) I think I'd want to look at the trans and queer experience and theory around that in relation to what Lisa Baretza was talking about in episode four. So maybe how queer women are affected, say, around the earnings gap, but also what other perspectives it could give us. I'd also want to talk to Sisters Uncut. You know, it'd be great to interview them about the direct action they've done about cuts and austerity and how that's affected domestic violence services. This is something Shiri mentioned that, you know, we've been in crisis for 10 years. Increases in domestic violence have been one of the tragedies of lockdown. I mean, there's more and I could go on, but, you know, I think that's what's exciting is that this has given me a new perspective and like all self-education, it will carry on. Yeah, this is going to really influence our practice. And one of the things I'm looking forward to is continuing the reading group. And we've also got loads of extra resources, a reading list of texts and links which expand on some of the topics talked about across the whole series. This is available at www.gasworks.org.uk. Thank you everyone for listening and for joining us on this journey. This whole project has only been possible by the generosity and experience and knowledge of the people that we've met and spoken to about these ideas. And we want to thank everyone who has contributed to making it happen. Thank you to Uzma Ashraf, Lisa Baretza, Katrin Boom, Lucilla Granada, Ailey Rutherford, Shiri Shalmi. Thank you to Marion Sharples, Marianne Stevenson and Tyra Mahirbert and everyone at Women's Budget Group. Thank you to Adebebe Candelo, Comenza Sierra Lopez, Ana Cecilia Clavijo, and all members of Ampla, Javiera Sandoval, Janine Moros Nujame, and all at Ermo. Thank you to Jade and Ivy, and to Stacey Clare and Juno Mack, members and allies of the Sex Workers Union. Thanks also to Mazaika and Balkis, and those present at the Women's Strike and Sex Work Strike on the 8th of March 2020. Thank you to Flor Andrade Valencia, Jacqueline Saldana, Isabel Cortez, to Suzanne and Molly, and all at United Voices of the World. Thank you to Claire Summers, Ingrid, Mater, Emmy, Faris, Sarah, Agnieszka, Shanaz, Kudeja, Kay Rosar, Lynn and Zara, who attended the workshops at Henry Fawcett Children's Centre, and to the staff there, Leanne Pitt, Conchita Thomas and Nadine Bennett. Thank you to everyone who has attended any of the Feminist Economics Reading Groups and the Evaluation Board meetings. And a massive thank you to Lucia Scatsocchio and to Ben Prescott, Fari Bradley, Andrea Franca, Ross Jardine and especially to Laura Henser and Sheena Balquill and all the Gasworks team. True Currency about Feminist Economics, produced by Amy Fennick and Ruth Beale from the Alternative School of Economics, with sound production by Lucia Scatsocchio from Social Broadcasts, 
and commissioned by Gasworks and supported by the Paul Hamlin Foundation and Arts Council England. <laughs>